When I get back home, I'll have time to think Not of you or me, don't bother while we're being so upfront Another Wednesday, another Aussie city, and this time a chat over coffee and breakfast. Speaking of our favourite stimulant though, for those who'd like to support our efforts but aren't able to make regular payments, we now have a page where you can send us a few dollars for a single coffee. That's at ko-fi.com forward slash two scientists. Keep us and our guests in the caffeinated style to which we've become accustomed. There's not a cocktail within reach that isn't up my sleeve. Not a canopy that doesn't make me weak. All right, welcome, dear listeners. This is another Two Scientists podcast. Sadly, David Basanta, I should specify, and I are coming to the end of our Australian trip. But we have one last guest speaker joining us today, and this is Dr. Karen Lamb. How are you doing, Karen? I'm good. Thanks for returning to me. No, absolutely. Um, let's interrupt for a coffee Yay, break. Coffee. Thank you. <laughs> I should also say that we're joined by her, her very lovely spouse, Dr. David Farmer. Hello. <laughs> who has reliably informed me that you are definitely the smarter of the two, so I'm interviewing the right person here. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, as we usually do, we start off the podcast by asking our speaker what their kind of route into science was and why they ended up doing that particular thing. So in your case, statistics. Yeah, um, so my pathway was very accidental. Um, I never wanted to do science. I didn't even really like it that much at school. I specifically did not like mathematics, so it's really weird that I end up doing this. Um, but yeah, I think when I was at school, I I could do maths, but I felt really uninspired by it because I didn't know why I was learning what I was learning. Um, mm-hmm. It just felt like you were just going through the motions and there was just no rationale behind it. Um, but, you know, I, I'm fortunate my dad's a mathematician, um, oh. so he used to tell me why I was learning what I was learning. But saying that, I still wasn't massively inspired. Um, so by the end of high school, I thought I was going to go and study English literature, um, and I was all set for that. And so I was doing both English and maths in my final year of school, but I started doing better in maths than in English, um, but I was putting all my effort into English, and I thought, oh, maybe I should just do maths then. Maybe I'll go and do that. <laughs> but as I say, I, wasn't, I still wasn't that excited about it. I just thought pragmatically it'd get me a good job. Um, thought I might work in finance or something. Um, so I went to Glasgow University, started doing mathematics and opted to also do statistics mm-hmm. um, because it was like maths, really. Um, but that's when I really became quite inspired by statistics because the department was very applied and they taught us very much from examples from their own research work. And it was all applied things, people working with environmental scientists, yep. people working with the medical school and people working with psychologists. And that was all brought into their teaching. And I saw the practical utility of this subject Mm -hmm. um, and I got really, really interested, particularly in the medical side of things. Um, And so my honours project was working with a stroke specialist um, and we're developing a risk prediction score to determine if someone had suffered from a transient ischemic attack. Um, And I really liked that collaborative work and working with people that were really, really passionate in their particular area and being able to help them because of my skills Mm -hmm. in maths and stats. 
Um, and so from there, I decided to do a PhD um, that was sort of mathematical biology, but also statistics um, in infectious diseases, um, and working with a lot of the national data we have in Scotland. And again, working with lots of microbiologists, lots of medics, lots of people from different backgrounds. And again, feeling that I had a skill that could really contribute to the questions they were trying to answer. Yeah. So you've been in Melbourne now for six years, right? Yep, that's right. And what do you do here? So I currently work at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Um, I am the lead biostatistician on this brand new cohort study that they're, they're creating called Generation Victoria. It's a very, very ambitious project um, and a world first project where we're trying to recruit all newborns in the state of Victoria over two year periods and try and follow them over the life course. And the idea is cohort studies are often quite challenging to get off the ground and keep participants engaged because you get a lot of loss to follow up over time. Um, but what we're trying to do is capitalize on existing routinely collected data um, through routine medical examinations and whatnot, trying to make that fit for research purposes and try and engage other researchers around Victoria and beyond to, mm -hmm. to feed into what we're trying to create so that it can be used broadly to answer lots of interesting health questions. Okay. So how practically do you apply statistics to what you do? Because I think for a lot of people, it's just a word. It's something that they see in an article that comes up as a percentage or, you know, this is a likelihood that this will happen. And I'm not sure the majority of people understand what that means. So my job has been very varied. My career as a biostatistician has, has changed quite a lot from going to work with a team as their sole statistician to being the person that when they have data, I'm the person that's helping them use that data to answer questions. So biostatisticians, people often think statistics is just sitting at your computer, analyzing data mm -hmm. and then spitting out your probabilities or whatnot. But actually... It's so much more than that. My job involves sitting with people to help them define the research question that they want to answer and that they can actually answer. And that's a really, really challenging part of the job because people will come with all these weird and wonderful ideas that are really exciting, but they're not framed in a way, a scientific enough way to be answerable. Mm -hmm. So I help them from that point of view. Ideally, what you want is a statistician to come in at the start to help design your study. Yeah. Um, sadly, that doesn't happen as often as it should, maybe because the scarcity of, um, of statisticians, there's very few of us. Um, but yeah, so once I get brought in, I'll help define the question um, and then I'll help advise on the particular methods, the statistical methods that can be used to answer those questions. And sometimes, depending on my role in the job, I will actually analyze the data for them. Mm -hmm. um, more often than not, that's what I like to do. But given, as I say, there's few statisticians, often it's advising people themselves and the methods they can use and how to take these on and how to interpret the findings from yep. them. So, Okay. And I think, honestly, to most biomedical scientists, that would be absolutely wonderful because we hate doing it. The majority yep. of people, not only do they hate doing it, I don't think they apply the right statistical test to yep. the things that they're studying. I think that's what's really challenging too, because like, I, I love statistics. I am a weird person. Um, <laughs> but I feel sometimes that it's not so much, I, people always say they hate it, but it's so useful and it's used in every mm -hmm. aspect of life. People, there's so much data out there and statistics is used to help answer all research questions. Um, but I think it's more a bit of a fear of math, certainly that I've found through some of the consultancy work that I've done, yeah. is that 
you know, maths is a language in its own its own right, and people will have that gap in their training, or they might have become disengaged, like I was, I guess, at school, and so they suddenly think it's this scary monster, and they don't actually want to to use it. Mm-hmm. But if you can help them see again the practical utility, like like I did, yeah. um, then they can start to come around. Um, it, it takes it takes a while. Um, I've had some consultancy meetings where I've worked with a biologist for like a year mm-hmm. until they felt more confident. And that's just in one particular technique. Um, so you have to invest the time. But ultimately, understanding statistics can help you in so many aspects of, of your life, whether it's, you know, understanding the risks presented to you when you're opting whether or not to go for an operation for mm-hmm. some health condition. So Yeah. I think the overarching problem with those things is, though, that people become very emotional and even though you explain the stats to them they're still going to be overwhelmed and potentially make poor decisions just because they think well if there's even the slightest chance that this is going to happen I'm not going to either take this treatment or do this thing. Yeah absolutely and I'm very aware that people are not approaching hearing about the risks in the way I do as a statistician and ultimately even you know I'm a person too I ultimately there will be an emotional part of it and I think there's a recognition too that you know we talk about even as statisticians we try not to be biased we try very very hard to be very scientific about everything but ultimately we're all people too and it's really hard to not put the human bias into to yeah. what you're doing yeah so David doesn't like the sound of his own voice so I get to ask his questions for him um he says many people think stats and math are the same thing uh, fundamentally, but you don't. Can you explain in lay terms what you see as the main difference? Do you know, I think that's a difficult one because I think as well people lump maths into one thing and I don't think itself that maths yeah. is its own set subject because, again, that's the other thing when I'm in consultancy that I try and talk to people about, the fact that just because you didn't like calculus doesn't mean you don't like algebra um, mm-hmm. or analysis or some or, or statistics even. Um, it's, it is another branch of mathematics and often mathematicians look down on statistics sadly um i guess because often it is a very applied part of mathematics mm-hmm. but you know applied mathematicians will also often work with you know medics doing yeah. modeling of of health outcomes so um i guess the statistics part i'm i'm as an applied biostatistician, I use a lot of data, which mathematicians might not so much but seeing that some applied mathematicians do um yeah so as I say I see it as a branch of maths mm-hmm. but it's a different it's a different skill set so yeah. um let's see it's a, a tricky one to answer because I see people will lump maths as maths and mm-hmm. stats as maths um but there are many aspects of mathematics that I don't like um even there are parts of statistics that I don't like and there's also me explaining what my role as a biostatistician. There are some biostatisticians that actually won't work with real data. Mm-hmm. They work entirely to test new methods and they'll, they'll create simulations. And, and it's all about the mathematical development of models, statistical models, rather than applied. Yeah. So, so again, even there's no one size fits all for, for my type of job either. Mm-hmm. So, um, but as I say, the reason I went to statistics because I wanted to solve real life problems with yeah. real life data. Yeah. So this kind of ties into a question I have as well, which is, so back in school, I was only one of two girls in our kind of advanced mathematics classes. So in uh, UK, in high school, you can stop at age 16. So we did advanced level courses um, before you go to university. And out of a class of maybe 12, there mm-hmm. were two of us. I, I couldn't understand why 
because it, it didn't feel like it was the kind of school where people weren't being um, people weren't being discouraged from going into these things. It's just that only two of us ended up doing that. We only had one girl in our physics classes at advanced mm. level. Um, was it the same for you? Did you find that there weren't very many girls doing maths or...? Not so much in maths, um, but I can relate to what you're saying. It was I, I didn't do advanced physics at school mm-hmm. because I would have been the only girl, um, and I was very put off doing that, partly because of that and because I just I felt that I would really stand out, um, and I think that's a real a real pity because I was pretty decent at physics. I probably mm-hmm. should have stuck in at it. Um, but maths, there was always more of a balance. And okay. so at university, actually, probably in my first year university class, it was probably slightly more women, maybe 60, 40. Oh, wow. Um, and the women will stay on in the, the subject. I guess what you struggle to see, maybe not so much in biostatistics, I think quite a lot of women will go into that branch of statistics, but maybe more theoretical statistics or theoretical mathematics, the women drop off very quickly, um, if you even find them at all in departments. Um, yeah. And I think still the culture is, from my perception, that this is, this is too hard. This is not where you mm-hmm. should be. Um, I think there's still an encouragement that women have the softer skills. So as I say, my job involves a lot of communication, a lot of teaching. And, you know, I have had times where people have said, oh, but that's what, what you guys like to do. You girls yeah. rather. Like yeah. that's what you're good at. Um, well, maybe the research will suffer because, because. It's women leading that, um, which is absolute nonsense, mm-hmm. but it still is a perception that, that is out there. Um, and I don't know, like last year I went to the very first Australian Women in Mathematics conference, and mm-hmm. that was really, really encouraging because there was a real support there and there was real learnings from one another about how, particularly, I say, those the more pure side of mathematics, about how to be more resilient, how to, to move forward. But there's just this idea and culture that, the women should adapt to fit more into the male environment, mm-hmm. but actually the environment needs to change because we have things to contribute as well. Absolutely. And those things are helpful, not a hindrance. Mm. Um, so is this uh, part of the reason for you to be involved in, what is it called, superstars of science? Or STEM. superstars of STEM, sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think... It's weird, and I, I didn't reflect so much on some of the, the unconscious bias that was there because I've, I've not my career hasn't really suffered. I haven't personally felt from yeah. from being female, mm-hmm. but saying that there's the odd remarks that stick with you, like going to a conference, being introduced as a biostatistician, and getting a remark like, "But you're a girl," yeah. or you know, I um, have been at conferences where the the men are all chatting about their research, and then someone will comment on my hair, and so not feeling part of it in my discipline not getting the chance to talk about well what am I actually working on statistics was very frustrating um and I saw this call for superstars of STEM which was about trying to promote women across science technology engineering and maths um, but also trying to be a role model for younger women and that was the reason I wanted to apply part of the superstars of STEM program in Australia um is going around high schools um and trying to show that there are women in these these professions, show why we're passionate about it, show why we're excited about it, and trying to encourage them to consider careers in that area too. And trying, from my part, to highlight that maths isn't as scary as people think it is. Um, but it's, it's been a great program. Like last year, was it was the launch of it, um, and they've now got funding to carry it on over the next few years um, and actually double, it was 30 superstars in the t- 2017 cohort but they're going to double it to 60 and have two years of training. So they trained That's us on cool. 
social media and communication and um, you know written skills even to try and um, write for things like the conversation about mm-hmm. what you're doing um, and just try and encourage us to be more confident and be out there a bit more because I think even in the science realms and social media the women are often the quieter um, and yep. so it's just saying the, the attitude is always if you can't see it you can't be it so yep. here we are this yeah, is what we're yeah, trying yeah. to do. Um, so it's, it's been a really fantastic program, but I think particularly what was really exciting about it was meeting these other wonderful women from mm-hmm. across STEM subjects. They're just, and it's just such a connected group. Um, and that's sometimes weird. You sometimes feel there's a lot of competition, particularly within your own fields, but because we are across lots of different areas, mm-hmm. it's a really nice, really supportive group. And we've learned a lot from each other because we've got people from straight out their PhDs in engineering right through to the chief scientist for the Bureau of Meteorology. Oh, wow. So it's just been really awesome learning from them and how things in their careers have changed, particularly the more the more senior of them. So mm-hmm. um, so I'm very keen for, for other women to consider joining this program in Australia because it's just been such a valuable experience. Yeah. I think part of um, the problem with getting any message out, as you say, is just being able to be more forward about so we don't want to have to become like men but to be able to put your message forward I think you really have to be quite brave especially on platforms like Twitter for example Mm. where um, it's easy to see people being attacked and I mean I honestly don't know whether there's research done on this but so it's very empirical the feeling that women are more likely to be attacked and just have more abuse hurled at them over a particular viewpoint than a man will that was one of the real problems with the Superstars of STEM group when they were trying to encourage us. We were, we were encouraged to en- embrace Twitter and LinkedIn as our, our mm-hmm. two key platforms. And there was a real fear of trolls and that was putting a lot of us as off really engaging as much as we could. Um, and I certainly find that too. I mean, there's a lot of vocal people in the statistics and data world that um, can be quite off-putting to try and engage in those those conversations. But... Certainly in the year that we've been part of this program, we haven't suffered, which is mm-hmm. which has been good. But we have seen other people have problems. There's been a, like a couple of episodes that were kind of minor, but as I say, I don't I don't know either the stats on whether women get attacked more. But I think the other issue we had as a group was, you know, you're saying you have to be very forthright and put yourself out there and women often get attacked for that. We're encouraged to be more masculine in our approach, but then those that are seeming to have these characteristics are then attacked for being like that because Mm -hmm. they don't have the softer feminine skills. So it almost feels like you just can't win. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, if we can't change to fit, then the environment has to change to (laughs) to adapt with us. So um, so it has been been really tricky. Okay. I know that David always likes these questions because his his job is also very reliant upon collaboration. But he says, as someone whose job is defined by collaboration with people with different expertise, what's the greatest challenge in your work? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I I find it really interesting being a biostatistician and being very um, passionate about it because you're always seen as the background role. You're always seen, I think part of the challenge I've, I've found is at times you're kind of seen as IT, mm-hmm. like, like just turn your computer on and off again and suddenly you'll get this magical result. Um, and that's that's really difficult. I think the hardest part is managing expectations. People think we have your da- these data, here you go, 
run something we'll get this out and you know I'm never sitting twiddling my thumbs waiting for one of my very many collaborators to come back to me I always have something happening Mm -hmm. and that probably is the hardest part because the researchers are so enthusiastic about trying to get their findings that like well our statisticians holding up the projects when ultimately the statisticians spread across maybe 20 or 30 different projects so you know you kind of have to wait your turn um and I say that's always been the hardest part of me because for me because I I like to be on top of things. I like to always be out there with the results for people because I'm excited about their projects too. But it's it's really hard because ultimately it's kind of first come first served um, unless there's an impending priority. The other issue, um, grant season is is the worst time for statisticians because. Mm-hmm. It's often, my grant is due tomorrow. Yes. Um, so really, realistically, we need a nice lead in. You need to come and chat to us a few weeks, at least before the grant's due so that we can work out what's feasible and possible. But mm-hmm. still, ultimately, um, until the culture changes to appreciate the statisticians need to be more involved, um, I still get the request the day before saying, oh, but we're only going to get a sample size of 20, but that'll be fine, right? And you're like, no, (laughs) No. no, you should have gone for a completely different design. Because ultimately, sometimes folk are dealing with smaller sample sizes Mm -hmm. because practically that's all they can get. But maybe the design they're using is not the best for the small sample sizes, and we can help with that, but not if you give us, like, two minutes' notice. Yes, quite. David Farmer, do you have any questions? Would you like to prompt any conversation here? I just think you're doing a really good job, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> no, what I really like is that uh, Dave doesn't ask me statistics questions. Like there is a, a well, very rarely, because um, there's a kind of un- unwritten rule in our household that that is that is my job and I need to switch off. So mm-hmm. for all Dave would quite like to ask me questions, well, he doesn't we, often do it. We met in undergrad, and I'm I'm a, I'm a neuroscientist as well. So obviously. As we met, there were no statistics questions. And then as I got into my degree, there was a sharp upward spike in the number of statistics questions that then tailed off over the course of the intervening time as the negative feedback to ask these statistics <laughs> questions regularly and at a constant rate applied until we've reached zero again. So it's been this. Yeah. I see. Very but nice. you know so much more about statistics than, than you did though, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I know not to ask you about it. <laughs> Well, so much so that the two of you have a conversation article on the the student's t-test, which is, I guess, one of the few things that a lot of people will remember from, you know, the stats that they have studied at some point. Yes. So I, that was one of the stories you get taught as an undergraduate in statistics is that the student's t-test has its origins with Guinness and both Dave and I like beer. We both <laughs> like Guinness. Um, and it was approaching St. Patrick's Day. And as I say, Part of the Superstars of STEM program was trying to encourage us to write for the conversation, but as much as I love statistics, it can be really hard to get something out there that's really topical and engaging and that people really want to read about statistics. Mm So I thought, well, the student's t-test is so commonly used um, by so many scientists, researchers, um, that talking about its origins um, I thought would be interesting given it's with beer but because Dave does a lot of science communication as well I thought maybe I'll bring him in so that if I write something that's too statsy and horrible he can like (laughs) rein me in a little bit so it actually worked quite well um I was a bit worried about collaborating with Dave but um yeah 
I think he probably made it a bit more amusing than I started off with being because ultimately, let's face it, I am still a statistician. So um, <laughs> it, was, it was a really fruitful and natural collaboration because you brought the idea for the articles and all of the statistical knowledge, and I brought my enthusiasm for beer. <laughs> yeah, I, I did find it a little bit hard because I, I did I did all the research to try and pull it together, and you're like, let's just tidy this up a bit. <laughs> and go to the pub. Yes. <laughs> celebratory Guinness after it was finished but it was a really nice process actually writing for the conversation again I was a little bit scared of it because you know negative feedback trolls all that kind of stuff but um the the person I was working with in the conversation was just fantastic really encouraging actually he had a maths background himself mm-hmm. but had totally moved away from that but he was like let's find more stats things to write about so um I think Stats history, though, might be where I'm sticking at. I don't know if I can start, actually. He wanted me to actually explain the Shunt's T-test in a brief conversation oh, article. Wow. Yeah. And without describing distributions. And it's just it's just really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. So he went and did a bit of his own research. Um, and he's like, even if you go on YouTube to find a brief introduction, it's like a 10-minute piece. Because yeah. it's fundamentals of statistics, but it's it's hard to explain without taking the time or the word count. Yeah. <laughs> I think when, you, when you're limited in that way, the, the trickiest thing is almost the, um, choosing the words. So you end up using words like probability and distribution, not necessarily as they're explicitly meant mm-hmm. by people in the statistics field, but as people will understand those words. And when you pick that definition early in the article, you just stick to it yeah. and then make sure that you're being consistent and not muddying the waters between what you're trying to get people to understand and what statistician would understand yeah. from using those very that, that was the hardest part of it yeah. because Dave or the editor would change things and make it incorrect because we're very precise about mm-hmm. our jargon and statistics as everyone is in their own scientific um, fields and I didn't want the statisticians to be looking at this going well that's just nonsense so yeah. we have to be you have to be very careful about the language you use mm-hmm. so um, because common words that we would just use in English mean yeah. something very specific yeah, yeah, yeah. in statistics. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of across the sciences. The word you use so commonly in day-to-day life, as soon as you mention it to someone else, like gene expression is a common one. Mm. The word expression means something completely different to someone outside of genetics yes. than it yeah. does to us. So, um, yeah. And this is this is why I feel like more scientists should be doing this kind of communication because then they have the point of view whereby they can say, well, this is really important. We can't change, you know, this language because otherwise the meaning is completely different. And I think through going through this this year of Superstars of STEM has really helped me in my career too because I, I joined the MCRI in March. I've just started this new job. And because we're in the design stages, like I am, I'm working with completely different people than I usually would work with. I'm actually not working with researchers. I'm working mm-hmm. with IT people that are creating oh, data wow. repositories. I'm working with data managers. I'm working with business analysts. Yeah. And our jargon, we use the same words, but in completely different ways. Uh-huh. And we all have to have good communication skills in order to make sure we're on the same page. Otherwise, things will be an absolute nonsense. Mm-hmm. And I, that's why as weird as this job is because I'm not like necessarily doing hands-on statistical analysis or, or any mathematics at the moment but I'm thinking about design and thinking about how to best express how I need the data to look when it comes out of the repository so, so it's a very very different role for me but I think the communication skills really have been key to that. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering whether it's something that's particularly popular in Australia but 
by uh, whether it's some weird coincidence that the three people that we've interviewed here have all written conversation articles. They do try and encourage it. I don't know, like when, so my job prior to, to MCRI was at Deakin University and I, I knew a fair few colleagues that were, were doing that. I mean, there's, there's a real push for doing the outreach work and mm-hmm. when you've got an article that's about to be published, contact your media team and actually try and talk about it a bit more. That was certainly the culture at Deakin University. Um, still finding my feet with the culture at MCRI, so I'm mm-hmm. not sure um, if it's quite as pushy as that. But it was, you know, why produce this if we're not going to tell people about this? This should be out there for the public to learn about, particularly when, you know, we're getting grant funding that it's coming from taxpayers. Mm-hmm. So um, we want to tell them what we're doing and why we're, we're really happy about doing the research we are. So, and I think, as I say, the conversation is, is part of that. Yep. So... Um my parents live in, in this small town of 5,000 people. So often when they want to go shopping and want to do something fun, they go to this slightly larger town of about 8,000 people. And there are two roads to get there. Yeah, it already sounds like a mathematical problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of them is actually uh, like uh, faster and easier to get into, but my mother thinks it's more dangerous. I'm not going to question whether the statistics are with her, but I'm just going along with that assumption. Mm. The other one actually it takes longer, it's older, but apparently it's safer. My father, this is his understanding of statistics, is like, I don't care what stats say, because whether I make it at the end, it's the run of the statistics. Basically, if I take the, the same road and I arrive, then who cares? And if I die, then the stats don't matter, because those are stats, I die or I don't die. So probably is a binary thing, right? Mm. Whereas the stats are this nebulous cloud of probabilities that... Yeah. Um, so how do I convince my father that he's just bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's not a hard question. No, I, th- I think I think that's an interesting one because, like, as I say, come back to the personal biases. Because even so, as I say, my father's a mathematician, and I got into a massive fight with him when we'd just been living here six months. I went back to to Europe for a conference and then popped by to to see my parents. And um, I do a lot of, I've done a lot of work in obesity research and um, we were sitting having dinner together and my dad was like, what are, what are Australians perceptions of Scottish people? And I'm like, oh, we're really fat and we drink too much. And my dad was appalled. He was horrified at this. And I was, you know, sweeping generalization, but that is, that is kind of the feeling about Scottish people. And so I was talking to him about, well, actually, the obesity rates are very high in Scotland and in the UK. And I, I know that. I work in that field. And my dad came back and went, Oh, but I never see fat people in my classes. He's a math lecturer. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Are you, are you claiming that people that go and study mathematics are generalizable to the whole population? And he got really annoyed with me. I'm like, you're actually fighting with your statistician daughter about something that you're, you're very obviously wrong. And, and my brother and my mom were sitting with us, like getting really frustrated because we we're having this really weird <laughs> argument to them. And they're like, can you both calm down? But, he was getting so angry and emotional because it was all based on this perception of Scottish people being fat. So he wanted to use the evidence from his experience. Weirdly, because he's a mathematician, he's a scientist, but ultimately people are inclined to just go with what is their own norm. So like your dad will think, well, this is fine because I'm going to, this is fine. But ultimately, it's not often people will go out there to go and look for the figures. And even, you know, myself as a statistician, like sometimes people are like, oh, you're a statistician, what percentage of people do this? And I'm like, well, that's not my area. But that's a feeling that statisticians just float about with statistics in their heads all the time. But, which I, I can't 
claim to do. But if it's something that I do work in that area, then I feel that confident in presenting my argument. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question really, but I guess it's um, you see it all the time. It's, people are comfortable with what they're comfortable with, and even in that instance, the figures won't necessarily help. It's the same when you start looking at like herbal remedies. It's like ah, but my uncle yeah. took this, and yeah, suddenly yeah, yeah. they're fine. And it's like, but yeah, there's no evidence base, yeah. but. Oh, but it worked for that person, so what's the harm? And the worry is there actually is a harm when something is really costly or people are convincing folk of something that's not going to help and and preventing them from taking something that has got evidence to help. So people say, what's the harm? But there can very yeah. much be a harm there. Um, and that's what worries me. But because of this, it's always still this, that what lies down lies in statistics yes. thing. Um, and it's still like, oh, why, why would we believe that? That's yeah. just a number. Yeah. It's based on something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's no correlation, and any less correlation, there's no clear reason for causation either. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's quite a few steps removed from facts. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In my mum's case, it's not an argument, but we, we have so this we conversation. Have this thing with yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And she's, so, I mean, she's not a scientist, she's not a mathematician. She did go to university, but. Um, yeah, she just refuses to believe anything other than anecdotes. She's like, oh, well, your dad did this thing. And I find it really hard even to explain the basic concept of having a control versus a non-control. Mm. Because there's no way to test whether if he hadn't done that thing, that he would have gotten better anyway. And he would have. Yeah. Like, yeah. But that's the problem even among like scientists and research. Yeah. I've, I've seen a lot of single arm studies where yeah, yeah. they haven't bothered to get a control grip and you're like oh why didn't you do yeah. that and again if they had spoken to me before they embarked on their study then I would have said please have a control grip like yeah. otherwise we don't know as you say someone would have just improved over time anyway yeah and also being part of a trial and getting some attention potentially from folk it's, mm. it's part of the potential placebo effect yes. too like I mean you know you're Absolutely. you're maybe just feeling better because someone's taking an interest yeah. in you so um, and yep. without having the control group that are part of it, it can be hard to separate. Yeah. Placebo's really interesting, though. The idea that even nowadays when people, they've studied it and they know that even if they know they're getting a placebo, they still feel better. Yeah. yeah. Super weird. Yeah. So potentially a nice, easy one to end out. Um, what does a normal day look like for you? Because you've <laughs> spoken about the fact that, you know, it's not what people expect, which yeah. is just switching on a computer and churning out something well in this new job my normal days involve lots of meetings really mm -hmm. um realistically i am going to management group meetings and putting forward a perspective as a data end user a researcher and trying to talk about well, what i would like to see from the data but also talking about how we're moving forward in this project and what how we can engage other researchers and policy analysts in it um, i'll work with the the it team, uh, the big data team, and talk to them about how they're building the repository, any challenges we have. I've been developing documents about data governance um, to ensure we've got proper data security procedures in place and standard operating procedures. Um, so it all sounds a bit dry and business-like, which is not what I'm used to as a researcher. I'm saying mm -hmm. it sounds dry. It is fascinating because I'm speaking to so many different people. Mm -hmm. But I'm starting now to do a little bit more analysis. We have some existing um, research data um, in the institute. So I'm doing some work looking at um, the association between timing of immunizations and eczema and asthma onset. So 
I'm working with researchers in the allergy team to, to do this analysis. Um, so I am sitting at my computer and, and fitting statistical models and trying to produce nice graphs so that I can really clearly explain the results to the, to the team. Um, but as I say, prior to that, it was a lot of consultancy. It was a lot of mm -hmm. meetings with one-on-one -on -one or one with two researchers where they would want to try and design a study or answer a particular research um, question. And I would help frame that, write an analysis plan for them and um, help them as they moved forward through collecting their data. Um, so yeah, less. I think as well as you get more senior, it's less yep. hands-on analysis and more yep. facilitating people doing what they need to do and managing other people to do the analysis themselves. Mm -hmm. And I know that you have uh, a day full of meetings today, so we'll probably let you go at this stage. But um, we really very much appreciate you coming to speak to us today. It's been really fun, really interesting. Yeah, thanks very much. Yay! Get my head stuck in a book Forget I ever wore this dress I think I'll go back home It could be good for me The very first international conference I went to, I was terrified. I was presenting in mathematical models, and um, we went because it was in Reykjavik. And my PhD supervisor really wanted to go to Reykjavik, so he said, "You have to present. You go do this." Um, it turns out there were no parallel sessions. It was the biggest ever conference attendance ever. So rather than present to like maybe a room of thirty or forty people, there was potentially a thousand. And not only that, but I found out the day before I went that um, the person whose model that I was basing all my PhD on was presenting just before me. So it was like this 15-minute <laughs> keynote and then a bunch of six-minute follow-ons. So he was speaking right before me, and then he dissed all of his old models that I'd based all of my work on. So I was sitting there going, fuck, what am I going to do? And my supervisor was just like, just make light of it. Just make light of it. Just go make a joke. And I'm like, yes. So I stood up and just was like... Oh, you know, I came here to learn from said big figure, but you know, clearly, you know, this is all nonsense. So we'll just go ahead with this anyway. <laughs> it was pretty full on. My body language tells you so. Let it be so. Thank you to the fabulous staff at Griggins and Orr in Melbourne for making us feel at home and for satisfying my need for crumpets. The song featured in this episode comes from friends of our guests, local band The Finks. You can hear this track, Body Language, and more on their Bandcamp page. Now, you'll have to excuse me while I recover from the change to Daylight Savings Time. May a deeper understanding never follow you May you remain naive forever May you never pull the thread Of the terrible unloneliness engulfing you May you never stop to think what you have said When I get back home I'll have simplicity A pencil for a memory Get back home, the words will come to me If I was quicker to the point, I'd offer those If my body language tells you so Let it be so
song Let it be so 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 Dave did a terrible impersonation of you earlier. Oh yeah, how did it go? I'm Kevin Lynn. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. I like sauce cheese <laughs> and flapjacks. I didn't say it, it was the-